0: Hello and welcome to The Mariner with me Chris major For those of you listening on the podcast this will be absolutely normal. Uh, for those of you who are watching on YouTube uh, hey you can see me it's happening. So something's changing and obviously we're living in strange times at the moment. Um, we're self-isolating here in Nova Scotia but um, the bag's packed <laughs> but we have to continue on right? So what are we going to do? I just was asking google for something completely benign and it ended up giving me a quote from martin luther he said uh if i knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces i would still plant my apple tree today so i'm not quite sure what's going on with the algorithm with google but it seems to be coming up with uh motivational words for us all so i'm planting an apple tree and if we can uh record easily the voice then we can record easily the image and we can share knowledge, share information. I see a lot of that going on at the moment. Super awesome. And uh, I'm most comfortable when I'm on a boat with a camera uh, showing you what's going on around me. I can't go to the boatyard right now and get the get the boat. So um, we'll just have to do it like this. So uh, I'm going to continue on with the podcast um, in the way that uh, we were we we're aiming anyway, which is me going into the uh, Southern Ocean proper, having come out of New Zealand. See, if you've been following the podcast up to now, <clears throat> um, I've set off round the world in the Velux Five Oceans race. This is uh, about nine years ago, and I had already sailed around the world as a skipper for the clipper race. I already had 100,000 miles under my belt, but suddenly i would got the opportunity to uh, take an Open 60, and that is a very different beast. And there's one of these podcasts called Taming the Beast, I think is it number four. I'm talking through exactly... What is the difference with a uh, uh, an open sixty? And it's it's the difference between getting in a NASCAR or driving to the supermarket. Most of sailing is driving to the supermarket, and then some of it's go karting, and some of it's NASCAR. And open sixties, when the throttles are wide open, that's NASCAR. So, um, as I came into New Zealand, I had been the fourth out of five on the first leg, the fourth out of five on the second leg. And now, unfortunately, at this point in the race, Christoph Bullens, who had been a fantastic competitor, but had just faced too many uphill struggles with the boat he had—the boat that had been dismasted, that new boat that he got—then not being able to really live up to its uh, its advertising and take him through the Southern Ocean from Cape Town to New Zealand. As I got into New Zealand, I was the last person in, but I was still fourth or five. So. It had not been the most awesome event. And obviously, you know, it's great learning to sail and develop skills, but it's not super awesome when you're doing it with uh, a lot of media on you and a lot of people with a lot more skills watching you and uh, and you failing terribly. So as I left, um, as I left New Zealand, I, I knew I had to, to to pull something out of the bag. I had to make this into something other than me being tail end Charlie sailing around the world. So I think. Two things happened which really um, changed my perspective. Uh, the first was that Brad Van Loo had been a great friend to me all the way through the race to this point. Um, he knew a lot about Open 60 racing, to put it absolutely mildly. He had already won uh, a solo around the world race in a, an Open 50. Um, he's now in a 60. He's going super hard, super fast, winning both legs so far. But one of his preparateurs, one of the people that prepped the boat for him, um, JC, was uh, very experienced with exactly the kind of boat that I had, one of these boats with the the deck spreaders that stick out on either side. So um, the the deck spreaders come out from the deck like this uh, and then go straight up to the mast with no spreaders on them. They have a very particular way that you sail them. Um, And there was, I think there were five hulls built the same from Fino Kong, who, uh, who built the boat that I had, and he had worked with one of the others with Mike Golding. So... Um, he knew a lot about these boats and we were at a party and uh, he was telling me like some detail of uh, of uh, how to sheet on the sails and how to get the headsails set up and the closing the top of the main, all this kind of stuff. And uh, I started thinking, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Yeah, I know how to do that. Yeah. And I thought, actually, I know exactly what he's talking about. And he's giving me a masterclass and I feel like I know the things he's coming to. Always, there's more to learn, of course. But I thought, I know kind of what's going on here. And Brad had given me loads of input and would give me loads of Yoda type tips. But um, I could tell almost by that point that he was starting to like, hey, you know, let's let's not give this guy too much information as, you know, it might be more difficult to be at the front. But uh, that was one thing I thought, okay, I'm I'm on this. I know what they're talking about. I know uh, roughly what they're what they're aiming at, what they're kind of tweaks and, and and tips are and then the next thing was i went to see david adams who was the race director i had huge admiration for david adams i don't know the details of the ins and outs i didn't watch the race go around but i understand that the race that david adams did i think was it the 2000 is it no Was it the 2000 race or was it a 1998 race hmm i think it was the 1998 race yeah 2000 Ooh. There you go. So (laughs) we should do some fact checking there. I can put something down here and tell you which year it was. But the year that David Adams was in, um, he was racing against Giovanni Saldini, uh, who's a legend of offshore racing Italian, just master. And um, I understand he had a boat which on paper was slower. But um, the thing about David Adams is he just has giant balls. There's just no two ways about it. And what he had done is basically just run because it's it's done in um uh, sprints that race yeah you're, you're sprinting from port to port so you can run things really hard much harder than you would do in the Vendee globe and then as you get into port you get all new stuff fixed stuff and deal with it right in that way it's like the volvo you know that was the thing that was lost when we lost the boc and then the Lux. that that race that that lineage uh um you ross you lost a solo race that was really hard sprinting and um I think that's a great pity. But uh, what David Adams was doing, he was just basically putting up spinnakers and then just run them until they say, you know, you put it up and God brings it down. Um, I'm not a, a, a religious person, but I get the feeling. It's like you put it up and then just your general rule is that's not coming down unless it brings itself down. Um, and he uh, he had an- ended up winning the events, um, but he'd done it by out sprinting Giovanni Saldini in a faster boat. So I thought this was a good person to go and talk to and uh and cut to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter was, um, why am I so slow? There's just no two ways about it. Why why am I so slow? Um and he said this. He said Chris, you're a brilliant seaman. Um, I've got so much respect for what you've done with the boat, getting it ready in such a short period of time. I know that you're literally sailing it as you're going. You're curing problems as you go, and I've got full respect for that. But you're no kind of racer. Right. Oh, <laughs> I guess I wasn't really too surprised to hear that, as I'd been fourth out of five uh, twice. But um, sometimes, you know, these hard hits that are going to help you—they they hurt at the time. And uh, I saw, how can they be so far ahead? Like, what are they doing? That's so different from what I'm doing like I've listened to JC giving you know advice on how to sail the boat I'm doing that and he said this he said you've got to have so much sail area up so much cloth in the air all the time that you are permanently petrified and if that's how you're sailing then you're competitive (laughs) oh great okay so I've spent all of my sailing career up until now even I've got to say even including the clipper race trying to trying to reduce the actual risk like I worked for Outward Bound for years right and what we would do there we're trying to create a, a personal development experience an environment where people can <clears throat> you know learn things about themselves they pick up the hard skill they're exploring they're adventuring but ultimately you can't have people so far out of their comfort zone that they're actually you know in a, in a point of fear you want to be in a learning zone not in a in a in a, in a fear zone so i guess what i'd done is i developed a fear uh, uh, a fear of sailing <laughs> well maybe i I'd developed a, a, a style of sailing which was very conservative and um he brought that to one point in time like you will never ever be at the front if you keep sailing like that so like oh okay uh right so what to do next and he didn't have anything else to say and that's the thing i, I guess that's what I loved about that family that built up around that race is that there was hints and tips for me. There was friendship for everyone. There was help for me to other people and fixing things and sharing things. My friend Magic that we've been racing on Sailing Poland with recently, he and I got to know each other because we were sharing equipment to his team, to Gutec's team, when they had issues with their electronics in New Zealand. Um, there was everything going every which way. But for me, with my skill level being low, there was hints and tips Um but never like the the 101. And that's one thing I think that afterwards really got me to consider starting Spartan Ocean Racing and Training, the the, the company which we have, which takes people out on the on the Open 60, on the Whipbread 60. Um, we've been out on a Volvo 65 recently. We've got plans to go out on the Volvo 70 because there's no other way of learning this stuff. There is no way that you can do this unless you know a guy who knows a guy or unless somehow you've, been involved in some campaign and you've developed skills and now you're invited on board there's no way to go on these boats and there's certainly not anywhere that you can go that's gonna teach you stuff there's no book like how to sail an open 60 like that doesn't exist like just like there's no um how to how to drive a nascar uh book but you could go to a nascar school what, what i was trying to do is start an open 60 uh, volvo 60 whitbread school which of course we'll come back to we've got now got the ocean globe race coming up which is going to mean that suddenly i have the opportunity to work with a group of people and train and and learn from them and teach them and get to the point where i actually go around the world so pretty excited about that but to get back to the uh the plot here i had these hints and tips but i had no details so i set off from new zealand and i gotta say the initial (laughs) like i basically every time i thought like i'm totally on top of this i would then cock it up like i had this guy come on board i forget his name now he's a, fr- a friend of um of alan Nabowers, who's a, a, another great uh mentor of mine and um he he said uh going into the start line he's uh he was on board to help me like you know get set up and, and get things he said you should have four reef sink going into the start line and so like, it was very very windy but these are open 60s i was like oh, <clears throat> you know okay well maybe yeah sure we'll uh we'll do that um took the advice don't want to be in a position where I'm the newbie and telling much more experienced people like, no, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. But went into the start line with four reefs in and everybody else has got three reefs in and then right off the start, we've got me behind again. But the good thing is the boat I had Spartan had a uh, incredible ability to catch up if you could catch the right angle. And the thing which did characterize my race around the world was the fact that because we'd only had eight weeks to get ready because I only had the sails which basically came with the boat, plus we we bought a, a new mainsail. It was the only sail we could afford. My spinnakers were... Um, now, let me get this absolutely right. My spinnakers in 2010 were from 1998. And I know this because it had London 2000, I think. Was it Olympics in 2000? Yeah, it was in Sydney, wasn't it? But this was branding, which had been done in 1998 on this sail for the... Um, The what's it called the 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 bid for London going and getting the Olympics in 2000. So the spinnakers were 12 years old at this point, nearly 13. The head sails had already been around the world once and then had been in storage and kind of on the boat for four years. And we had a new main made from uh, dacron Dyneema, which uh, was good, but is not like the most hardy thing. So I didn't have a code zero. So we had this terrible problem where basically the polars i had for the boat i discussed this in the last one did not completely cover uh exactly what was going on with the boat uh because i had sails i had different sails i didn't have what the polars were thinking i you know had something else um i had the ability to go very fast with that boat when i was on the exact angle where i had the sails for that <laughs> for that angle and everything else was a compromise and the other thing was that uh the ray marine equipment i was sponsored by ray marine for this event and they were just awesome i have to say like oh i got a i got a text message from someone uh no it was instagram who um <clears throat> people have started sending me questions and things now this is from pat brady 205 hello pat um and he uh he says he doesn't mind uh the way you go off on tangents is perfect for me just as my mind starts to wander so does yours so i'm not going to apologize if i go off on tangents <clears throat> we're well, not a machine clearly um, but the, um, the issue I was getting into with the Raymarine stuff, like I'd like to say Ray Marine were awesome. And one of the best, best experiences of the campaign was like on the Monday, uh, I, I go back into the offices and I've agreed to do this thing. And, and Sir Robin, um, you know, we do the paperwork and he's got as much support as he possibly could have for me is brilliant. And, um, he says, I'm going to, um, going to put you in contact with Raymarine and they'll be able to help you. Now, where we were in Gospel in the UK, down in the south, Raymarine's place is literally, I think it's Leon Solent, just around the corner. So um, you can go literally to the head offices of, of Raymarine and, and go and talk to them directly. And, uh, and I did and went in to see uh, the head of international communication. And um, she was completely and utterly awesome. It was one of the, the best moments. <clears throat> it was the first day, I think, of of all of this thing of going around the world. And uh, I'm, my head is spinning with the fact that <clears throat> I've just got back from sailing around the world. I've got to get this boat ready. As I'm doing this, as I'm going to Raymarine, let me tell you what was happening uh, with the boat. Um, we took a halyard from the top of the mast. We put it onto the deck of my uh clipper around the world boat, Qingdao. And then we grounded on the halyard, and we tipped the Open sixty on its side. And as I was going to Raymarine, people were in dinghies <laughs> with big scrapers scraping. I'm going to drop a coffee. They were scraping the bottom of the boat. That's the kind of condition it was in, you know. So I go down, you know, drive down to to Raymarine, go in, see them. I've got my little, you know, we we'd had a uh, um, set of paperwork for um, wanting to get round the world uh, sponsorship, but um, the uh, the fact of the matter was it wasn't awesome now i look back on it but i've got this little you know um pdf or whatever powerpoint slides um paperwork going yeah okay i'm going to go around the world and uh doing this thing doing the vlux of oceans race and uh the lady i can't remember her name now oh she was so wonderful again hey this is great because this is going to be for those who are listening to the podcast we'll just have to work it out later on but for on youtube we can just put it down underneath where i'm speaking right but um she said uh yeah yeah okay i can see where you're going with this yeah i can see that uh you know the the potential here and rain would like to support you and uh yeah i think we can do that and we're like sitting in the cafeteria of Raymarine, like okay cool cool what does that mean she's like well just go down to the service department and tell them everything you need and they'll give it to you like oh okay right so get to the service department I tell them what I think I need and then the guys down there for whom it's just boxes on a shelf they're like well you probably need two of those and then you'll need this cable and you need this other thing and lo and behold they just literally stacked up this stuff I took half with me and the other half they brought down and then they came and actually fitted it all and did everything else so Raymarine were amazing and it was at the point where Fleer had bought them so they were doing all of the the, the PCBs and stuff it's and so I think Raymarine before had always been like like a poor man's version of, of going to sea. And uh, once Fleer got involved, Raymarine like went to a totally different place. And I've got to tell you, <clears throat> without a shadow of a doubt, that stuff went all the way around the world and it was absolutely brilliant. But it had one key weakness, which is i described previously. The mast on that boat was a rotating wing mast. So it meant that um, you needed to have a wind sensor at the top of the mast, which was coordinated with a um, mast angle sensor at the bottom of the mast and then you had to have a set of brains in the uh in the true wind um calculation area of the of the of the brains of the thing that was then going to coordinate both the wind angle at the top of the mast and the mast angle relative to the boat and then give you a number and the rain marine stuff couldn't do that and that meant that um <laughs> all the way around the world i could sail by the apparent wind basically by i would look up through the windows And then I would set up, get to the setup screen on the rain rain stuff. And I would look up at the little sensor at the top of the rig, like the the Windex. (laughs) And I would then set the apparent wind angle, beep, 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 offset until it looked about right. And then the boat would sail along like that. So me going and being competitive in this boat, it's not just about my lack of skill in this. The issue is also that... uh, there were some physical issues with the boat, which are definitely slowing me down. So um, anyway, right. So back to New Zealand. You OK, brat, Pat? You, you kept up with me there. So um, I leave and I, I've got this in my head like, well, you just need to have so much area up that you're permanently petrified. So, I, OK. So i would had a repair done on the trinket. That's the smaller headsail, like the staysail, essentially, on the front of the boat, leaving uh, just before I left uh, New Zealand. And lo and behold, it, the first... First day, literally out, this this thing rips. So I have to go up the rig, which is a big deal on those boats. If We haven't talked about this, have we? So if you need to go up the mast on an open 60 at sea when you're solo, you, you have to go up there on your own. Obviously, not just shinning up the mast. There's no one to grind you up. <clears throat> I've tried a number of different techniques. I've got two down now that I'm, I'm happy with. If it's like an, an emergency, like the end of the world emergency, or if I'm in port... I use a system which I saw um, Riggers using in California, actually, I think. Me. And they, um, what they do is they have like two fiddle blocks, so blocks with two two pieces in, top and bottom, and you create like a, a falls, like a gun tackle. So it goes round and round and round and then down to you. What you do is you hoist this all the way up the mast with a halyard, like obviously lash secured, doubled, everything, up it goes. And then it's got four falls in it, and one of them comes out to you. And then the other end is attached to you. So you've got like basically a block and tackle, a pulley system, which is going to you can pull yourself up the mast. Um, So you can pull, pull, pull. It's very easy. It's four to one. There's a lot of rope involved. It's 400, 400 feet of rope. I think it is. Um, But you can pull yourself up and you can go really fast. There's a couple downsides. And I actually learned the downside of it um, not that long ago when I was bringing uh, Falcon back from the UK. <clears throat> and um i don't think i mentioned this before but i was in falmouth and i i put myself up the rig using this method to do something or other and it was a really heavy uh rain it, it was raining but it became very heavy when i was up the mast and i'm pull 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 totally happy no problem at all got myself to the top of the rig but remember that this line i'm it's got four falls in it and i'm pulling one of them and shortening everything off so now we've got, it's a 100 foot mast. Now it's 400 feet of line or 300 feet on the deck and me at the top of the mast and 100 feet between me and the deck, right? There's a lot of rope. Now directly below the mast is the daggerboards. And having never had the problem 99 times, it's always been fine. Just chuck the rope down, right? I'm in port, it's not moving around. Well, this time, not so good. I threw it down and not looking, being too casual, it cast a hitch over the daggerboard. And as I come to oh, all done up here, feeling very pro, very happy with myself, I start to ease down <clears throat> and I can't go down because <laughs> the rope is stuck down below and uh, there's nobody around. It's like 11 o'clock at night. Of course it is. And uh, the only people that are out are the Falmouth um, r and the Royal National Lifeboat Institute. And they're like circling, doing some kind of uh, manoeuvre in the in the marina harbour area where we are right now. I was at. Uh, is it? challenger key is it called or endeavor challenger key i think it's called and um i can see them looking up at me and they and i keep my head torched on i keep looking like you know i know what i'm doing and everything's fine jesus how am i gonna get out of this one like this is this is not good at all (laughs) so i'm gonna have to disconnect myself from this and then get down the rope somehow so what i do is uh i manage to kind of jog and pull enough of the line that goes from me to the deck which is then the uh, what should have been the, the control line that I'm going to let back through the system. I get my, I have a figure of eight with me, not completely stupid. And, uh, is that correct? Or, oh, no, <laughs> I am completely stupid. Cause what I actually did is I created an Italian friction hitch, a munter hitch onto a carabiner. So it's a little hitch that you cast onto the, uh, the carabiner to give yourself friction in an emergency situation. I managed to get that onto a carabiner. So I'm, now attached at top of the rig and I can't get down but I do have a carabiner which is attached to this this line which goes from top to bottom remember when the blocks are block and block when they're chock-a-block at the top of the mast it's basically a solid fixing at the top of the mast and the bottom is under tension but it's a little bit of slack or the bottom is secured and and stuck but there is a little bit of slack in the line enough to operate the the Italian hitch so I then uh transfer my harness connection from my block and tackle clever rigging system and connect onto the carabiner and then let myself down the rig that way but whew, what you're meant to do is you're meant to use like a jumarring system which is jumars are a kind of um ascender used primarily in, in caving as far as i know and um they uh, as a unit that allows you to go up the rope but then when you put pressure downwards pressure on it it locks off on the rope so you have one attached to your chest and then you have another one which is attached to uh, a unit which is um, a little bit lower down on the on the rope once here on your chest it kind of ends up being about here the other one's in front of you here but your feet are attached to this one so there's just two straps that go down your feet are in this one so what you can do is stand on your feet put your weight on this one and then slide this one up by your hand and then sit on your harness that hangs from this one and then lift your feet up and this one comes up. So you can very slowly ascend a line. But um, literally to get up an open 60 rig would take you between 10 and 15 minutes if if you're not getting thrown around too much. With the rig that I had, it doesn't have any spreaders at all. So there's literally nothing to hold on to apart from being like, <laughs> like a koala bear just like holding on to the rig as you're going up. So to stop you flying off, you have... Uh, a line which you have pulled up, which is your jumaring line, which you've secured at the top of the rig. Then you have another halyard, which you've got a quick draw and you're clipping onto that. And then what I do is I have my, my belt <clears throat> and I don't really have a, I've got all sorts of harnesses. I've always got this on with every time I see. So we'll go through this later on, but there's all sorts of things in here. Torch, um, multi-tool, my, my knife, which we'll be talking about later on. There's some interesting things to be chatted about there. Um, but it always has this on. And this is uh, this was originally um, the kind of thing you had on tool ships, this is what I came up with. And this would attach you to the to the rig. Oh, ow, gotta be careful now, podcast. So I'm showing my belt, which um, is basically a, a canvas, I think it's a bit more than that, but a, a webbing style belt with a D-ring at the front, which um, my uh, a strop is connected to, which is a tether off a life jacket, one of those extendy spin lock clips. And then I've got my, um, uh, it's got a little capsizing uh, square buckle at the front, like a life jacket might have. And then my knife, my multi-tool and my torch it. So I've always got that on me when I'm on the boat. Um, life jackets, when you're on your own and you're away from the shore, are less important because, of course... Um, If you go in the water no one's going to come back and save you Um, so you must remain connected to the boat and in any situation on a boat you must remain connected to the boat but um, what I do then is I'm going up the rig is I take that extra clip and anything that's nearby or anything that's kind of if I'm going past a piece of rigging if I'm going past if I have to stop I can clip even onto one of the sliders on the mainsail and you can get up there but it takes a lot of time and if you're being thrown around a lot by the ocean it can be extremely difficult so I managed to come off the racing line. Now we go back to what we were talking about, which is leaving New Zealand, came off the racing line, went up the rig, and the way that those sails work, you're not pulling the sails up on a halyard and then up and, up and down easily by uh, releasing a halyard in the cockpit. What you've got is the fact that you need to um, go up the mast and then the sail is lashed onto the furler at the top and it's lashed onto the furler at the bottom. And if you wanna remove it from the boat, you need to go up the rig, cut the lashing, or have a halyard attached to it now cut the lashing lower it down with the halyard work on it pull it back up with the halyard relash it at the top disconnect the halyard they're not intended for any kind of um reefing methods they're just just you unfurl them and furl them and there's nothing in between you never like half open half closed so uh, I go up, I get this trinket down, I bring it onto the deck, I'm fixing the sail, I've got a rip that's maybe you know a foot long, something like that, and then I have to wait a day to get out of some rough weather to then go back up the rig, put the trinket back on. So again, again, I'm behind, and I keep listening to this thing repeating in my head of Dave Adams saying, you've got to have so much sail area up that you're permanently petrified. So we set off into the uh, Pacific, and coming out of New Zealand... Um, it was one of the only times where there were very few uh, ice limit marks in the course. The course was designed so that um, you could dive towards uh, Cape Horn. Cape Horn is, I think, 56 and a half degrees south. It's pretty far south. Um, so you're looking at... Uh, going south but you obviously looking at the those big weather systems we talked about this in the last one the big weather systems rolling in from the west rolling in rolling over you and um, you're having to modulate how much wind you're getting by modulating um, how, how far south you are as they come in the winds are rotating uh, clockwise the wind's coming in from the west. If you go further south, you're closer to the centre, higher wind speed. If you stay further to the north, less wind speed. So you're coming out New Zealand. You're slowly going south and, and east, obviously, towards the Horn, and then watching for these systems coming in. <clears throat> so everybody else was pretty far ahead of me. But one aspect of the race which had not yielded any benefits for me at all at this point, but um, I suddenly set my gaze on, was the fact that we had speed gates. And the speed gates, I've done this in the Clipper race. I've done it in the Velux race. Um... The race organisers will pick a point about ten degrees apart, like six six hundred miles apart, which for one of those boats could be you know a day and a half or even well it could be a day and a half or less. You know some of the new boats are now starting to push above five hundred miles in a day when they're really uh, cooking. So a day and a bit, but certainly for for me and where I was at, like two days. So you pick two lines of longitude and as you go into that area, they time how long it takes you to get out that area. So even though I was behind, potentially if I was very fast through the gate, I could pick up some points. And those points added up to the overall score. So Brad had been very quick going in there. Uh, Gutek was quick. Derek was quick. Um, And for me going in, I was, you know, a little bit behind, not huge amounts behind, but I was a little behind. It hadn't slowed me massively. The trinket... Uh, as I'd been repairing it, I'd had the solent up, so it wasn't the, the end of the world, but I had had to put a few wiggles in my course that the others didn't but um, as we came towards the speed gate, I realized like here's an opportunity to fly so I thought okay how do you how do you like put up more sail area than you ever think is safe when well, you just you put it up that's what you do you put up way more sail area than you think you should have and I think in the last one, I talked a little bit about the fact that um I was still getting to grips with the fact that i didn't know properly how to reef and i had asked brad Van Lu a few times about this like you know what am i doing wrong because i would end up like zooming along and uh then suddenly the boat would like wipe out basically the autopilot would lose control um the boat would end up on its side with the main you know still pretty hard on not necessarily crash tact or crash jive but just where the sails where it should have been like reaching it's now on its side blowing dead down when with all the sails in tight and leaning way over on its side um and i'd said you know it's do i need to reef and he's like no no the problem's not reefing so you're like okay thanks yoda uh so what's the problem he's like well maybe it's something else <laughs> okay useful so uh what is it and one time when he'd had a couple beers he said it's something electronic i was like oh okay so it must be the autopilot so what i twigged very quickly was that you could have a huge amount of sail area up but if that autopilot the corridor that the autopilot goes down is something you can set you've got the gain which is how much rudder it's going to put on to um to correct but you also have the the width of the avenue that it allow it to sail down so will it allow it three degrees off course will it allow it five degrees off course seven ten if you allow it to be 10 degree wide avenue well then you're going to use a lot less power because it's going to be slowly making its way down this avenue putting on helm when it needs to but it's kind of just going in the right direction the problem is when you have got a really powerful boat at speed and you've got spinnakers up whatever they're very very susceptible to apparent wind angle changes and acceleration changes and if you have um uh the the autopilot too far off course it will wipe out so on this leg at some point around now i realized like oh i got to get the autopilot i got to really tighten down the avenue so it's only like the little lane away so that it goes down it's only three degrees wide and if we if we haven't worked that out we are literally sailing 95% of the time under autopilot when we do these races. People often ask me that. There's like there was a time way back when when virtually anybody could sail faster than autopilot. We had flux gate compasses and that little unit that used to auto tiller that would be sitting in the cockpit and would be just little belt and driving the wheel on your CNC or your westerly. Yeah, you could drive faster than autopilot. No problem. Uh, that's 20 years ago. Once they got um, gyro compasses in, once the algorithms were more more adapted to particular boats, now it knows it's a sailboat, not a motorboat. Now it knows it's a boat that cruises at eight knots or it cruises at 16 knots. And it's now got the ability to work out what's full rudder on both sides, what's centre rudder, how much rudder can it leave on when you're sailing. So as a a helmsman would do, you leave a little bit of rudder on. Back in the day, they had to keep putting rudder on and taking it off, putting rudder on and taking it off. Now that they can just leave a little bit on, like it's getting way, way, way better. There are a couple of situations when you've got weird cross seas and you've got fluky winds or you've got a sail that's particularly um, finicky or the fact that obviously a full crew, you've got the crew trimming like mad. The helm is keeping the course and the the crew accounting for the apparent wind angle changes. um, Okay, that's faster. But if you're talking about a boat where there's very few people on deck or they don't have the skill level to to trim like that or the physicality to trim like that, um, you cannot drive faster. I don't really mind what your situation is. Um, you can't drive faster than the new autopilot. So for me, um, I was getting happier with the fact that I had a real performance out the autopilot, but I was still not yet at a point where I really trusted it to drive at full tilt. So what I was doing is rather than... Um, pushing the boat as fast as it possibly could go I was I was all the time backing off so this is the point where I suddenly breached that that limit and just okay let's go faster and now know how to keep it on track so reefing had been an issue because that big square top mainsail now we've got very big seas and we're leaping from the top of waves you know you're you're coming off the top of the wave and very regularly the front half of the boat is out the water very regularly two-thirds of the boat is out the water and then it plunges its nose in and you have to find that balance between where it's going to just drive into the next wave and then just pitch pole up onto its end. Not pitch pole all the way over, but certainly pitch, shall we say, up and then slam back down and go again. So as we came to this gate, this this line between two longitudes or this, this, this expanse between two longitudes where we had to go as fast as we could, I thought, start it. here we go. So the code five had been a great friend. It was a good um, angle for it. And I just let it rip. And uh, and I was going good. I was going really good. And I, it was whether my time was going to beat Brad Van Luz, who at that point was has holding the points for going through the, the gate fastest, um, whether it was I was going to be second or whether I was going to be first. It was going that good. And then the thing which really characterizes my Southern Ocean uh, experience on the Velux, the thing that uh, I remember most um, is uh, what happened as I was just getting to the end of that gate. Um, it ended up being that, uh, I, as this happens, I was at Point Nemo. So, uh, for those on the podcast, uh, I can describe it for those on YouTube. I'll show a little picture here, but, uh, Point Nemo is the point halfway between New Zealand and South America, where you are as far away from everything as you can possibly get all right so uh you're two and a half thousand miles from anything um which means that once you're there you it's the remote most remote place you can be on the planet um antarctica uh, is is closer to things um in space is closer uh going to the moon would be the only way of getting further away from human beings now there might be a couple of people in a ship somewhere there might be a couple of people in an antarctic uh research base or something but in terms of somewhere that anybody's actually likely to go <laughs> uh, on a on a merchant ship or on a military ship or on a uh, on a crazy race like this point nemo is as far as you can get from anywhere and of course where does this problem I'm about to describe happen it happens there um i wrote about this in the 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 book i wrote which you never published uh maybe we'll, we'll we'll come back to that another time. And, um, uh, I was thinking about like reading it. Uh, I don't know, maybe there's something to be taken from that. I hope so. There's difficult times now, actually. That's a good point. Like there's it, the book is actually about biting off more than you can chew and then chewing really hard. Um, it's about facing adversity and making your way through it, like little step by little step. So maybe there is a, maybe it's time to unpack that. But anyway, I, I talk about this situation in the book and, um, without putting too fine a point on it, I got a good result. Like I didn't die. But I gotta tell you, it was the it was the hardest thing I had to do. It was the hardest physical thing I had to do. And it's the closest I came to breaking um on this. I had physically ended up in the bilges, just crying my eyes out on that first leg just from the from the emotional burnout from everything that's going on in my life. But emotions aside, nothing coming from the outside in terms of the event itself actually given me hardship this was the moment where it all started to go wrong so i'm blasting east and south towards cape horn i'm as far away from human beings as possible to get i'm getting to grips with my boat but as i've described you can tell you know i didn't <laughs> didn't have it all stitched together uh, i've had to be up got up the rig and fix sails uh, i've just getting the autopilot worked out i'm trying hard to be this different kind of sailor and uh, I get myself into a a squall system one night. So squalls, when they come in, we don't really use the radar that much. Um, Let's qualify that. The radar is very, very useful in low visibility conditions where um, it is difficult for you to perceive what's going on with your eyes around you. And certainly if you're in an area where there's like unlit rocks or breakwaters or smaller vessels that may not be lit properly, radar's your thing. But if you're in the Southern Ocean and you're uh, the only thing you're possibly going to see is another commercial ship, the fact that the likelihood of them not having lights on is almost zero. So uh, the radar comes on um, for a different usage, which is the fact that you can see uh, squalls. So your microwave at home and a radar are basically the same piece of equipment. Um, It is a 3000 gigahertz uh, magnetron, which is pumping out a signal. Uh, inside your microwave, it's pumping it towards the food. It's essentially a sound wave. Um, it's vibrating the molecules of the water in your food and it's heating it up. Uh, the radar is pumping it out into the space around you and looking for a return signals. So you can perceive far off um, solid items. But what it does, is it, it works very good at picking up water. it it is blocked by it vibrates water molecules so if you're on in an aircraft your weather radar would be a a x-band 3000 gigahertz radar which is the same as i've got on the boat what big ships will have is they'll have an s-band radar which is a higher frequency which then does not get disrupted by water droplets so they can see into squalls and they can see through fog and fog banks and, and and moisture-laden environments and they can see ships. But then they use their X-band radar as well and they can see the weather, see the ship, they overlay the two over them. But for us, you know, if a ship's in a, in a, in a rain squall, we can't see it. We just see the rain squall. But I can see the squall. So what you do is you turn on your radar and then you can start to see like what's around you, where it is, is the pockets where it may not be, is there, how long is it gonna last, that kind of thing. So I'm in the school system, the boat's doing 20, 25 knots, the wind is probably 30, 35 knots, but remember that that is then only give me an apparent wind on deck of 10, 15, 20 knots maybe, right? So it's it's all completely under control, it's not an issue. It's just these crazy numbers of like, yeah, I was blowing 35 knots and I'm doing 25 knots start to become normal, right? Um, But then it started to pump up and I've got like, I think I had first reef in at this point, first reef in Solon and I'm charging full ballast, full keel counted, a dagger board down probably, um, howling through the night, um, enjoying the ride, lots of coffee at that time, lots of cigarettes, uh, lots of Haribo. Uh, I'm now in a dry suit, which I've been wearing already for 10, 15 days just to to paint the picture and uh, I, I always drive around with all my deck lights on. It's it's good, I think, for the soul um, that you have light, certainly with new modern head torches, with the LED lights, they're very, very like blue-white. It's very harsh. Um, the deck lights uh, on our boats always make sure if it's LED, it's got a nice soft, um, f- is it 5,700K uh, uh, light signature? Like, nice, like this Tiffany light behind me, like nice, gentle light. Um, and also the fact is that we have nav lights, but they are on a hundred foot high stick. And, uh, it is possible to miss them. More lights on, particularly lights that are lighting up the sails is better. So I'm driving along with this, like theater going on around me of all these waves and wind and goodness knows what is going on around me. And, uh, the, the boat rocketing say through the night that the wind starts building starts building starts building. We're getting through towards dawn. And I look at the radar and I look at and see the score. Like it's, it's a lot thicker. It's a lot heavier. There's obviously a lot more moisture. And where you've got moisture precipitating out of, um, of from a gaseous state, you've got a release of energy. So you can guess, not that it's a firm fact, but you can guess if there's a lot more rain in the back of a squall, it's possible that the back wall of the squall is a lot stronger. And it has been my experience with squalls that um, they often will ramp up towards the end of the squall, the end of it passing over you or you passing through it, whichever kind of boat you've got, whatever kind of speed you're capable of for open 60s, we're driving out the front of stuff. So I'm driving into the back of the school and um I see, okay, it's getting stronger and stronger. And then like the wind, the true wind speeds at like 40, 42. I'm like, I got to put another reef in. This is insane. Like the boat's now touching 29, 20, 29.5, 30 knots. So, and the, the front is coming off the waves and burying right into the, the next wave and shoveling up a load of water. And it all goes super dark inside and then it clears and you're watering the cockpit and you can imagine, right? So, uh, and this is obviously thousands of miles from anyone, anywhere. So I'm already like on, on hooks. I've been going as fast as I could already for 24 hours. I'm coming towards the end of the, uh, the the gate. It's still maybe 10 hours away. I've got to get through the squall. Got to keep going. Got to get some points. Don't be the last man. Don't break the boat. And what happens is I start putting this reef in. And the the sail, or well, you reef with these boats, like any boat. First of all, you have to do is you've got to release the halyard. You've got, well, you've got to release the main sheet, you've got to release the vang, you know, this is not 101, but you've got to get a number of things going, but you you get the main sail starting to come down, the main halyard starting to release, you're starting to collect the front of the sail, you're starting to get the, the, the tack strop reset for the, whichever reef I was going then to second reef, starting to get the halyard tension, but when you're on your own, you can just focus on the front of the sail, you must leave the back of the sail completely loose because if you start to put tension in there before the tack set, then you're gonna start creating a, a loose three point parachute and what it's gonna do is it start to look for, for bits that it can break to try and re- release pressure and it's gonna start breaking off the sliders. So the front first, everything loose, front comes down, get that tension in, bear in mind I'm running away from the wind, I've got a rotating wing mast, the wind's behind me, the sail is like pretty much wrapped onto the, onto the leeward rigging on the starboard side I think it was and I'm pulling the sail down, I'm jumping up